Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolitsich of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. Vivek, you know, you have him wrapping M&M at the Iowa State Fair or the multiple times he's had a protester show up to his event, which always gets me a little like... Is <laughs> it plant? Yeah, is it a plant? Whatever. It doesn't matter. He, he does a good job in terms of creating a viral moment where he treats the person with civility. And, and regardless of whether it's a plant or not, it, it's, it's just good content, right? It's, it's, it's good marketing. I just don't think that, that the average primary voter in the Republican Party, that's going to tip them. Like, oh, man, he's so civil. Like, we need someone like that. Like, this is a party that that like Trump, like Trump runs. And and so like they don't care about civility, right? The civility has been thrown out the window since 2016 in this party because the, the largest chunk of the base is deeply unsatisfied with the way the coastal professional managerial class, uh, you know, Washington establishment works. There's a fetishization of like IQ as a parameter that matters after a certain point of intelligence like it doesn't matter if you're that much more intelligent or not even in terms of your ability to make useful contributions but then when it comes to human dignity that you're going to court somebody it doesn't matter at all even whether you're at that stratum or not and i think the sense of losing your self-importance just because you're like smart or intelligent have some authority to deliver this message because whatever for whoever's playing that sport like 99.99% of the time, I'm going to have outwon that relative to you. But I'm just going to tell you from that position of like self-realization, that does not accord you more moral worth than the perceived rube you see think is showing up at that MAGA rally because they're too dumb to understand climate change. Actually, most of them might be more educated on the topic of climate change than you believe you are. Hey, everybody. We're doing something a bit different on this week's episode of Moment of Zen. First, Dan and I talk about Vivek Ramaswamy's candidacy, what we find interesting, what we find challenging, and where he goes from here. Followed by that is an interview I did with Vivek Ramaswamy a few months ago that I released on Upstream. I don't think that the candidacy is relevant in a world where Trump has 50% in the polls and he's not even in second place. He, he He's had a big increase from his baseline, but we're still talking about a, uh, a candidate that has is polling under 10%, right? Nikki Haley got the actual biggest bump coming out of the, the debate. I, I didn't watch the debate, right? Like it's why, why waste the time? And he's, he's still running behind DeSantis who, who has not made a single right move the entire kind of early part of the campaign. And so I, I, I'm curious, like, why why people were like, why you, you're so excited about him to begin with, but, you know. Well, part of it is just, if we were talking about Vivek a year ago, and we said, hey, a year from now, Vivek is going to be 10% or wherever he is in the polls, 
we would say no way, right? So part like he's 10x Andrew Yang, who himself, Andrew Yang, came out of nowhere and kind of, you know, was uh, accomplished something by getting 1% or whatever he got. So just on pure candidacy alone, coming out of nowhere, you know, having no political experience, he seems to have momentum. I, I think that that's the least that you could say for him. And that's surprising. Right. But I think we should we should separate the two parties here. So there's this fantasy in the Democratic Party that somehow by Michael Bloomberg and, and Bloomberg is actually a politician. So like we should even give him credit there, although he, he was a Republican before he decided to run as a Democrat. Bloomberg, Howard Schultz, um, who is it? Tom Steyer, uh, you know, Andrew Yang. It's this idea of like a competent, uh, successful from, a, you know, you could call them entrepreneurs, right? I mean, Tom Steyer, like, um, what, what did he, he, he did Farallon Capital Management. So he's like, a, you know, a financier type. Uh, obviously, Howard Schultz with Starbucks. But, but it's this idea that, like, you have this competent executive that is going to come in and, and run on kind of like a presidential platform. It's never worked for the Democrats. I don't I, I, like who, who's the most successful through that. That the, the Democrats nominate based on the kind of like party machine, right? And that's to the to the chagrin of Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, both with Hillary and with Biden, you you take the establishment candidate and you put them there. Obama being kind of like maybe the one exception. Um, I don't I don't know enough about Clinton in terms of who, who he was running against in the primary. I think it was, maybe it was Dukakis. So, you know, I, 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 my history is not as good back there, but for those most recent candidates, um, Obama's the exception, but still very much, I mean, he, he gave a speech at the Democratic National Convention, you know, during uh, the Kerry campaign and stuff like that. So Democrats don't nominate business people because th that that's not how the, the party works, right? Um. As it relates to Republicans, Republicans, in, in theory, are the, the party of small business, um, traditionally the, the party of like bigger business, although I think that's probably shifted over the last 20 years. And you had a major presidential candidate in Mitt Romney. Basically, yes, he was a governor, but but also a competent business executive is, is kind of like how he ran um, and obviously was governor of a state like Massachusetts. Um Ross Perot, uh, this is what I was actually reading before, right before we talked to this, uh, kind of ran on this platform of like, hey, I'm an outsider, I'm a business person. Donald Trump ran on that. But I don't think anyone voting for Donald Trump was looking at the kind of like business credentials. Donald Trump is a big middle finger to the establishment, right? It's the Richmond, north of Richmond, you know, quip. It's MAGA. It's everything that is, I, I feel like I've been left out of this kind of globalist uh, increase in, in prosperity very much co correlated with Silicon Valley and things like that. So the thing I don't, Vivek, um, obviously extremely bright, um, you know, has all the right credentials, although I would argue that might be hurting him um, in the sense that the, the party he's trying to win is, is probably the more anti-credential of the two, not more, or probably it, it is, right? And I, I just don't see the constituency. It's like, who 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 is going to vote for Vivek that wouldn't vote for Trump outside of a group of Republicans that have kind of been more or less manhandled by Trump, right? Like Trump Trump is like, it's the, it's the pirate meme. It's like, I, I'm the captain now. Like he runs the Republican party. And whether he runs that competently or he screwed them over in the midterms, 
the reality is, is like everything goes through Trump, good or bad, right? Like they lose the Georgia runoff because Trump is unwilling to acknowledge that the election results were valid. Um, but like that doesn't stop him from saying like, OK, like I, I don't think that they're valid and, and your turnout is lower or the people are voting against that. And so I, I think where Vivek sits is he's in this he's like the of all of the Republican candidates, he is the most pro-Trump. And and the cynics are kind of like, oh, he's trying to uh, vie for a VP spot. Maybe that's the case. But I think it's like if if you're basically the closest to Trump on the spectrum here, your constituency is probably actually even smaller because when push comes to shove, most people, the reveal preference in the voting booth is if you if you like what you hear from Vivek, you're probably just going to vote for Trump. Vivek's not going to win the presidency in 2024. I, I don't. I don't think that the the sort of excitement about Vivek is less about that, and it's more one to your point. Could he be VP or two? The future of the Republican Party. I.e., if Trump, you know, died this year, Vivek could beat DeSantis, right? Yeah, I would say the thing is, is that DeSantis is foiled by Trump because DeSantis has no. He he's, he can't meme. Um, and, and we've talked a little bit about this, you know, Vivek does have some amount of that. Um, yeah. But I think in a more kind of like in a world where Trump doesn't exist, that that's such a huge change that you have to then get to a place where you're like, OK, are we back to a world where the average Republican primary voter is happy voting for someone like Mitt Romney, which is, is I'd, I'd say DeSantis is, is much more akin to that. Right. It's like a governor. um, kind of like down the middle, I think Vivek is, is very much positioned to a more uh, extreme part of the party, right? He's trying to appeal to the, the MAGA voter or MAGA light, whatever you want to say. And so maybe maybe he tacks back. But I, but I also think like, and it's hard because Trump obviously represents New York. He's a real estate guy. You know, he, he did go to Penn. So he has all those things. But Vivek, like, and, and he is Vivek is from Ohio nominally. Um, but like, does the average voter in, in Iowa want to elect a, a hedge fund guy? Right. And, and, you know, he can claim to be an entrepreneur with the, the pharmaceutical stuff. I'm going to kind of look at that a little sideways, like, you know, in the arena, how about that? Like to, to use the, the topic to sure. But, but I think the reality is he's, he's made a bunch of money. Um, and I'm not I'm not insinuating that it's that that's nefarious or illegal, but hedge fund guy is not going to have the same appeal. I don't know as as and and maybe I'm wrong. Look, like Mitt Romney was a was a private equity guy, but I think that there was a certain level of like once you're a governor of a state, like that's that's a little bit more what you run on versus the the kind of background. And I think Trump, the thing that. And this is the the core of why Trump drives so many people crazy. Trump came out and said the thing that actually pulls best for Republicans. It's, you know, uh, the wall, right? Like immigration and, and the, you know, the accusing uh, people from Mexico of, of kind of crimes that most of them don't commit. It's this kind of thing that drives liberals crazy, right? Right from the start. But the reality is, is that if you look at Mexican-Americans who live near the border, they vote for Trump because they, they actually also think the border is an issue. And the average Republican, you know, base voter and, and that core constituency of MAGA is anti-immigrant. It, it's like a like that that is what polls well. And so I, I think like 
Trump owning that and never having given up the, up on that. And the Muslim ban, uh, you know, this is a famous thing. Trump was falling in, in the in the polls in 2015. And around December, like Christmas time, December 2015, he, he they, they pre-announced the Muslim ban, right? And he his poll number skyrocketed within a week. And, and he never, never fell back into kind of any, any part of the pack. And so this just kind of very anti-immigrant message, put the merits of that aside, like, you know, I, I don't, I don't endorse that personally. I, I think we should have a, a much smarter immigration policy in the country. It polls extremely well with a huge base of people in the country. And I think like the, the other kind of elephant in the room is like, do you think that the people who are like anti-immigrant are going to be voting for the son of immigrants? Maybe. I don't know. But I, I think like that's a challenge that um, th the party is going to have for a very long time because the most motivated part of the party is extremely anti-immigrant. And Trump, for as long as he exists, is, is going to carry that banner. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, Vivek runs on more of like a merit-based uh, immigration, so he's more um, open to that, as, as, as you mentioned. Um, on the VP, which, which, by the way, that's my my yeah, personal policy. But I'm yeah. I'm not running for the Republican, you know, presidential nomination and and having to win primary voters that are like decidedly, you know, like say anything about like border. I I think we should have a like an actual border policy. Like that that seems reasonable. Yeah. But I think tacking more and more anti-immigrant gets you poll numbers. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about Vivek's platform. Like, wh how do you make sense of like what, what do you think are the things that make Vivek vague in terms of, uh, in terms of like the most notable policy proposals. I could take a stab too, if you want. Well, I mean, look, he's, he's, a uh, he's got his book, right? So kudos for him for getting that work done before the campaign and yeah. doing his book tour. So he has the talking points down. Um, it, it's interesting that he, he has a, a lot of similar things that what DeSantis is doing. So like Vivek has his book and, and the like anti-woke platform that, that he's built um, and then DeSantis has a bunch of these kind of what I would say cosmetic, like anti-woke legislation that he's done in Florida to kind of, you know, prepare for the campaign. Um, I think the the one thing I would say, and, and this is actually I think DeSantis and, and Vivek are actually a lot closer than, you know, I mean, maybe people are already saying this. I, I don't follow this too, too closely, but there's a lot of Curtis influence, right? Like a lot of talk about the administrative state. It's, you know, we're going to freeze federal bureaucracy. Uh, both are, uh, what's interesting is both are, I think, Yale educated lawyers, right? Or or maybe, no, DeSantis is Yale undergrad, Harvard law, and Vivek is Harvard undergrad, Yale law, right? Just like PMC all the way, um, despite them being kind of more populist, uh, contrarian types. But in both cases, they, they have some amount of legal understanding. 
And um, I think they both kind of look at the, like, how can we expand both this, this kind of, like, expansion from the Supreme Court around this major questions doctrine that says, hey, regulatory agencies, you just don't have carte blanche to do whatever you want. Like, you have to get laws passed, which in the case of like having a Republican president come in and and actually trying to change the way the federal kind of government bureaucracy and the executive branch agencies work, I think they're both pretty similar on that. Um, I would say Vivek is more wonky in the sense that like he he comes up with he reminds me in some ways of like a right wing Elizabeth Warren where you know he's obviously extremely bright so he can kind of get to the the root of a, of a lot of like whatever policies he's trying to say and, and come up with something that sounds clever. Um, I don't know if the average voter cares about that. I think where he's done really well relative to DeSantis is and we've talked about this he's extremely good at Twitter and so he's constantly flooding the zone with the latest thing that Vivek is doing versus what happens to DeSantis is the it's whatever the meme the left or his competitors on the right turn him into it's like that really awkward clip from the debate where he kind of looks like a robot or like he him being at some campaign event where he just kind of looks like a robot um whereas Vivek you know you have him rapping Eminem at the Iowa State Fair or the multiple times he's had a protester show up to his event which always gets me a little like you know, <laughs> is it a plant? Yeah, is it a plant? Whatever, it doesn't matter. He he does a good job in terms of creating a viral moment where he treats the person with civility and and regardless of whether it's a plant or not, it, it's it's just good content, right? It's 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 good marketing. I just don't think that that the average primary voter in the Republican Party that's going to tip them like, oh man, he's so civil. Like we need someone like that. Like this is a party that that like Trump, like Trump runs and and so like they don't care about civility right um you know the uh whatever the grab them by the blank uh you know like it, it, civility has been thrown out the window since 2016 in this party because the the largest chunk of the base is deeply unsatisfied with the way the coastal professional managerial class uh, you know, Washington establishment works. Yeah, the the bull case is that Vivek has enough of Trump. I.e., he has the the anti-establishment um, sort of instinct, and and he's got the arguments to back it up with a tinge of Obama. In that he's he takes the higher road. He's about, or at least you know, optically, or you know, when when he speaks, um, he's an, he's an, yeah, he's a very eloquent um, sort of speaker. But then also he's he debates and and he he wins and he take and he looks good doing it often. I don't, I don't believe that. Like Obama's cool. Obama's always been cool. You can disagree with his policies. You That's might true. not ever Obama want to vote cool. for him. Yeah. Like Obama was the moment he stepped on the stage at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. Like you were like that guy. That guy has 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 riz. How about that political riz? Um, you know he's 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 always been cool, right? Like you know Vivek is is rap. And this is the thing is like it's so hard if you're a Republican. To be cool because all of the people who are the tastemakers and make people cool in the media are, are, are against you, right? Like, there's no way for a Republican to actually be cool. Um, where, like the arguably the last like cool uh, Republican or maybe the only one ever is is Reagan, and part of that is because he he was from Hollywood, right? Like maybe maybe Schwarzenegger, and and obviously you're still going to have plenty of the attacks, but like there's a certain allure of, of kind of being an actor 
um, that is going to maybe help you bridge that. But like, you know, Obama had all the pieces of like, oh, he's playing basketball with all these people. And, you know, Vivek has the, the clip of him with his out of shirt on playing tennis. It's like, come on, man. Like that's he, he needs like someone to be able to sit by him and be like, don't don't do that. Like do the civility with the kind of like protester plant. Yeah, yeah. That works. But like some of these other things, he was like doing burpees with his wife. And it's just like, dude, that's cringe. Like, to be fair, though, he it, maybe you have a Streisand effect here where even when it's cringe, people are talking about you. No one's talking about Nikki Haley's workouts. Right. Exactly. So, and- so I, I I don't know. Like my 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 point of view is you can't win via the the kind of like path that is not available to you. And in the case, it's like you're never going to have a Republican actually be cool. But I, so I agree. Obama was cool. Vivek is not cool. What, what, what I meant, Vivek is an endearing nerd. Um, Obama was high integrity or perceived as high integrity. And I think Vivek, what he does is there was a set of Republican voters who voted for Trump or maybe even didn't vote for Trump. But even if they voted for Trump, felt really guilty about it. They, they liked his policies, but they just, you know, um, they didn't like the grab him by the and all, all that bullshit. Vivek is, is the policies without that. So it, the, the people who felt guilty for or could just were never Trumpers because they couldn't get behind Trump, they, they might get behind Vivek. So I just mean in terms of like elevating the integrity and intelligence of the of, of, of the of the candidacy. And he's he's not cool. He's cringe. But his voters are cringe. And and so they, they might find it endearing, like to your point, all the cool people are on <laughs> on the left. And so or a lot of them are um, right. But but to that, I think that's hopium. Like we're elevating the integrity and intelligence of the candidate. That's not that's not the game like that. That is the like we have this this model like, oh, we're electing the like most competent person. No, we elect the person that does best at the retail politics game. Right. Um, they actually had like all in had this whole segment a couple of weeks ago where they went back and forth on this and they were all getting upset about it. And I, I forget the right. I think Sachs was the only one that had like the reasonable thing. It's like the game is win the primary so you can then win the general election. That's how you get to power, like path to power that you, you, that's how you focus on it. And and the thing is, is that the what the Republican base is voting for, they want a bully. They want someone who is going to own the libs or like own the establishment. That is what Trump is. They don't think of him as high integrity. Right. Like lib media being like, oh, the average Republican voter thinks Trump in his like golden Trump Tower room is the epitome of success. It's like, no, like that's just like people basically treating it, you know, thinking that the masses are stupid. They're not. Everyone knows exactly what they're voting for Trump. It's it's go in there and spend the next four years driving the people that you hate crazy. And even if this guy drives you a little crazy, it drives them way more crazy. And I think if you just start thinking through that, it's like. It, it's it's the what what it's the point of power it's like to help your friends and hurt your enemies and like that that is what the appeal of trump is is that you know you have an attack dog who will have the uh you know like the vitality to wake up every single day and just drive these people crazy for four years because you don't feel like you have any other option right and so i think that like until that shifts and and, and maybe your point is like look like let's just say trump is probably going to be the nominee here and like we're, we're now four years into the future for the Republican party. And there's a pretty good history in the Republican party of the kind of like second place finisher is now the front runner in the next one. Right. So McCain versus Bush McCain becomes the nominee the next time. Um, 
you know, Romney versus McCain, Romney is is the nominee the next time. And 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 the same with the the Democrats, right? It's like you kind of have the same group of people kind of trying again and again. But I mean, four years is a long time, and obviously there's a huge difference if if Trump ends up winning the the you know election, assuming he's um, nominated, and he might be in jail, and that will be interesting. But if he does, then the, I mean, it's really hard to imagine a Republican uh, candidate winning 2028 if Trump has spent the last four years. Like it's like almost guaranteed that there's going to be a big blue wave coming back so whereas if if biden is president again then then yeah i think things are wide open and i don't i look at the you know the democratic bench is maybe aoc gets into the you know the ring but like gavin newsom kamala like like these people are just not going to resonate especially after four more years of kind of biden and by then i would imagine trump is just too old to run although you know that 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 might be opium too. We might we might be stuck with this guy until he dies. Uh, I, I think we will. Um, and the question is just when is when is that? Um, yeah, I think to, my my case would be that outside of Trump, and he will die at some point in the next decade, possibly. Uh, uh, Vivek might be the second best person for the goals that you outlined, which is just drive it to your enemies because he, he's that's what he does, just day in and day out. But that's like saying like Howard Dean because he had that like kind of like big push an internet native in 2004 was going to now be able to hang over the party it's like nah it's kind of, he was kind of cringe and he just got smoked by a combination of you have the coolest candidate in modern american history mixed with like the most establishment machine candidate <laughs> with hillary clinton and then john edwards is is somehow in in the mix like there is no room and and that that shifted so i think like Four years is a long time in politics. And so I, I would say I would hesitate to be like, oh, Vivek, if he finishes second here, is setting himself up really good, you know, well for a 2028 run. There's just too many, too many variables for that. In addition, you can have other people come in, right? It's not like he has a ton yeah. of political experience. So yeah, someone yeah. could look at that and say, hey, that works really well. I'm actually, you know, all of these other things that he's not, and I'm going to just follow and, and do that, right? Because because a lot of the retail politics stuff is it's just it's a, it's an act right so you yeah. you can adopt that persona and and do that for the campaign um exactly yeah my, my prediction is vivek is is basically they're like an ex youtube podcaster <laughs> like yang has become yeah. or or ends up working at fox news as, as something and and then yeah. is trying to do this like you know non woke uh black rock which like good luck man like what do they have like a billion dollars in aum like <laughs> what is what is black blackrock is in the trillions there's a ways to go on, on doing that and i don't think you do that part-time i think that that you know you, that's a an endeavor in of its own yeah i um i think i agree vivek is certainly no shoe in to uh to me what's exciting about this on a meta level is that in 2018 or 2019 i don't even think he had any twitter followers and now you know three four years later he's a candidate for for like and so it's just in like it just goes to show like in 2028 2032 if mike solana started now could he become a candidate it just shows that to your point like people can come out of nowhere and um it's kind of up for grabs if it's the right uh you know the right person with the right charisma with the right right views um and, and that's exciting 
So I, I believe the more internet native a candidate is, the better they are going. It's like that that is going to be a an increasing advantage. Like as as older people die off who are less internet native, the entire voter base is going to be internet native. And I go back to if your ability to quote tweet or dunk in an authentic way actually from the candidate and not a staffer, that is going to outperform on on average across across the board. Yeah. Um so I, I think you're just going to see more candidates pop up who don't have any experience but are extremely good at memeing and, and using the internet. Um, so, yeah. I, I, and I would say Vivek is good relative to his field, relative, like, yeah. in the sense that he's also competing against probably the best one at doing this. Yeah. And uh, I would say four years from now, we could have, you know, a couple more people who are even better. Yeah. And um, we'll get to this in our chat with Balaji that, that we had and it'll be released next Wait, week can, can we can we preview a couple of the upcoming guests yeah yeah uh we have abology part one and part two uh that we will be releasing and you know we were talking about like you know vivek on a national stage i think there's a big opportunity for vivek of san francisco like who could like someone to come out of nowhere and just build this massive like online movement that hopefully translates into something i mean gary tan has, has really stepped up um, you know, we had Michelle Tandler on, on previously, but, um, yeah, th th I feel like there's a huge opening and, and no one's really playing the online game well outside of the people we just mentioned. Uh, Vivek, welcome to the, welcome to the podcast. We've been, we've been talking for a while now and I'm excited to, excited to have a long form conversation. Twitter has been our main medium of getting to know each other a little bit, but, uh, it's good to do it the real way. Totally. And, and uh, I interviewed you on Clubhouse a couple of years ago with Mark Andreessen and Catherine Boyle. And we, we talked about your book, which is a perfect segue. And at the time, you, we, we talked about how you spent a number of years focused on um, fighting a physical cancer with your biotech company that you took public. And now you, you set out to then solve a cultural cancer. And you released Woke Inc. You also released uh, Nation of Victims. You started a company, uh, Strive Asset Management, that that's, uh, that tried to fight some of the excesses of uh, of, of woke, woke capital. And, and then you run for president. <laughs> or you're not, now you're running for president. So take us through that journey of when you realize that, hey, this isn't just enough to, to write books and, and, and run, run Strive. I have to go fight this at the highest level. Yeah, I mean, my career was as an entrepreneur, right? So I founded Royvent and, you know, I'm incredibly proud of what we built there. And there's five drugs that I personally worked on that are FDA approved medicines today. And it's a multi-billion dollar business and all that stuff. That was what my world was. And I began my career studying science. So I thought I was going to be a scientist. That's what that world looked like. I think that since I stepped down from my job at Royvent, traveled the country, I actually wrote, you know, so a pair of books. There's actually a third one. I thought that exposing this you know, what I saw as a cultural cancer was itself an important service and contribution that I could make. Talking openly as a member of the, you know, whatever, let's just call it what it is, most elite educated. I wasn't born into wealth, but self-generated wealth in elite America. Talking with, you know, I think some level of authority, having understood how, if you will, the game is played, to be able to lift the curtain a little bit on why my fellow CEOs and investors and whatnot would privately agree with a lot of what I had to say, but weren't saying it in public. And I understood what that gap was about because I faced some of those same pressures as a CEO. At the same time, I grew weary of just, after a couple of years, I would say, of just complaining about the problem. 
I do think there's a role for shining a light on a problem, but I felt like I had reached about a couple hundred cable news hits in and two books in and the third one on the way. I was hitting a plateau on how much additional contribution I was going to make by just exposing that problem, especially because, you know, I think I played a role and others did too in creating a little bit of a culture of courage in our country where others were able to step out of their own, you know, closets and start talking about some of the same issues. I felt like the contribution I was able to make as a as a commentator or as an author started to, you know, hit diminishing returns. And so I thought what I was going to do most for the next five to 10 years was to exclusively put myself all back in, in my career as an entrepreneur to drive positive change through the private sector. And so that's what led me to start Strive. And Strive is doing you know great as a business for its first year off the ground. I'm really proud of what we got off the ground. That's what I was all in on as sort of the next step, combined with maybe continuing to write books. You know, Strive was taking on BlackRock and the ESG movement still is, but through the market, offering market alternatives to everyday Americans to invest capital in the market, but without sending a politicized message to corporate America in the form of environmental or social mandates, instead to mandate those companies to make money by providing products and services to people who needed them. And, and so I was on that journey. I will say that, I, I would say that I, I came to the realization, and this was in the context of writing my third book on the ESG movement, it's called Capitalist Punishment, it's coming out pretty soon, that it did dawn on me in a deeper way than it did even when I was writing Woke Inc. that this top-down marriage of government and corporate power and the cynical forces that perpetuated, I would say, a lot of cultural orthodoxies and secular cults in America, from wokeism to climatism to whatever else, it only works if we have a culture and a populace that's willing to buy up the narrative that they're selling. It does take two to tango. And the reality is I wasn't going to change that underlying demand side of the equation, no matter how much alternative supply I brought to bear. And I don't believe in silver bullets. I do believe in, you know, whatever, a plethora of partial solutions. So I was in my lane through the market. But late last year, I mean, this was really like December of last year, mostly even seriously over Christmas break, you know, the question of the why, like, why are we doing what we do? I mean, that settled in pretty deep for me. My wife and I looked each other in the eye and we started to have a serious conversation about the idea of running for president. It was, it was an idea introduced to me through, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't an unfamiliar idea. There'd be pe people come up to me and say this at points over the last couple of years during the book tours. But, you know, it wasn't something that we took seriously. But in the midst then of an election season, Donald Trump had already declared we were entering an election season. There's a national identity crisis. It felt like I had a contribution to make to filling that national vacuum of identity that I wasn't going to be able to fully go the distance and do, be able to do just through the market. And, you know, thankfully I have achieved financial success and, and independence to be able to now dedicate those resources to having a positive impact. And while I think Strive is going to be, I hope, an important part of a cultural revival in this country. I don't think there's a silver bullet. And I think that there was an opportunity for me to step up and say, you know what, there's a missing national identity in this country. If I can do for America in 2024, what Ronald Reagan did in 1980, leading America out of its last national identity crisis. And, and I, for, for reasons we can talk about, I do think that that's what I want to contribute to this race and to this country. Then that's what I felt compelled and called to do. And so 
we entered the race not that far after. It was only a, two months later by late February. I think I'm one of these people once you, once I've decided I'm going to do something, I'm, I'm just, I don't like to dilly-dally around. I like to do it. And so by late February, I declared that I was entering the race. I want to introduce some of your ideas to our, our, our Silicon Valley audience. So you're running to win, first and foremost. Yes. But you're also running to advance your ideas. And, and you, you, you would love uh, other candidates or, or the GOP in general to advance some, some of your ideas, even in the case in which you don't win. Why don't you talk about some of the ideas that you'd most like uh, to, be, to be advanced or to be copied by other candidates? Yeah, I mean, look, we're already seeing it. And frankly, I think my team uh, and the campaign team gets a lot more annoyed about it than I do. I think it's a good thing for the country if we're elevating the issues that matter. The GOP is in many ways a party that skips the step of defining what it stands for. My question is, what do we stand for and why do we stand for it? And so then they go to bickering about the who, right? Ronna McDaniel or somebody else or Kevin McCarthy or somebody else or Donald Trump or somebody else, just obsessing over the question of the who without ever stopping to have first defined the what and the why. And I think if we define the what do we stand for and why do we stand for it, the question of who actually becomes a lot easier, who's best suited to advance that agenda. So our whole campaign strategy is to lead the way in defining the agenda, the what and the why. And then the bet is the voters will next year reward the person who led the way in defining that agenda. But it's a win-win either way is the way I look at it. So the whole campaign for me is about reviving American national identity answering the question of what it means to be American at a moment in our national history where we lack a good answer to that question. So, so to me, important ideas of what it means to be American. It means reviving ideas like merit and meritocracy and the unapologetic pursuit of excellence, reviving ideas like free speech and open debate as a central part of our culture and how we settle political differences, reviving the idea of self-governance, a society in which every citizen's voice and vote counts equally without frankly, elite intervention or without a quasi-monarchical structure that imposes the right answers to the questions on the rest of society at large, rule of law. Those will be examples of principles that then guide my policy positions. So, so let's talk about merit and meritocracy. I'm the first presidential candidate in history. This may be shocking, but it's as best we can tell, it is true as can be. I'm the first U.S. presidential candidate in history who has pledged to end race-based affirmative action in America. And that's a mystery because it's something that a president can actually do. Why can a president do it? Because affirmative action was created by executive order under Lyndon Johnson. If it can be created by executive order, it can be ended by executive order. I've pledged to do it. Not a single Republican candidate even has touched this issue, not even Donald Trump. And I pushed his people on it. The reason they gave is they said this was not a political hill they wanted to die on. Well, I think that for a lot of reasons, we can talk about what those are. This is an issue that I'm not only prepared to take on, I believe we will end a cancer on our national soul by ending this form of de facto racism embedded into hiring practices and, and college admissions practices. And really, I would say a culture across our country. That's, a, that's an easy one. I think I'm I think the only person in so many words that is expressly committed to abandon the demands of the climate cult in America. I think that I'm not one of these people that just talks about time horizons or it's an all of the above strategy who say those words because they think that's what they're allowed to say, even though in their hearts they think something different. I'm going to say that part out loud. I think that the anti-impact framework, the carbon emission minimizing framework, is itself the wrong framework. I think the right framework is one that asks the question of how we maximize human prosperity through metrics like GDP growth. And we can get into, you know, a big part of my agenda is unleashing economic growth in the country. 
Speaking of which, I think that we have to take aim at other impediments to economic growth, not just the climate cult and its demands and unleashing U.S. energy, but also the behavior of the U.S. Federal Reserve. I think the Federal Reserve has been a bad actor for the last 25 years trying to hit two targets with one arrow, inflation and unemployment, which has proven to be a disastrous 25-year experiment since the Fed got academically infected in the late 1990s. I think what the Federal Reserve needs to do is go back to focusing on what it did focus on even after it went off the gold standard in the early 1970s for the you know 1980s and much of the 90s focused on stabilizing the US dollar as a unit of measurement. That too is a big impediment to GDP growth. I'm a big opponent while we're on the topic of currencies, an opponent to central bank digital currencies, which I think are a, you know, I think a grave threat to liberty in this country for the same reasons that China is adopting central bank digital currencies. In the US, that's become an argument to say we need to do that to keep up. I view it the other way is precisely for the reasons that the CCP wants to adopt it is exactly the reasons why we in the United States shouldn't. You know, I, I can I can go on. I mean, I think that I'm also a proponent of unapologetically solving the actual problems that we face in our country within our own borders, like, say, the fentanyl crisis. It's a supply-side driven crisis. It's not an academic debate in a freshman year of a of a you know expository writing class where you, in principle, could say this is demand-side driven. Well, in principle, it might be. In practice, it's not. It's a supply-side driven problem in this country driven by countless amounts. I mean, thousands upon hundreds of thousands of, of pills and otherwise through which fentanyl is trafficked into this country responsible for over 100,000 American deaths per year, including places like my home state here in Ohio, where I'm talking to you from. I believe that it is both a legally and morally justified use of military force to use the U.S. military to annihilate the drug cartels south of the border in Mexico. If we can do it to ISIS across the world, we can certainly do it to the narco state south of our own border with the cartels as non-state actors that are responsible for literally five, 50 times as many people as died on 9-11 dying each year here in the United States. So these are unconventional ideas. Uh, I mean, I have policy positions on most of what enters the mainstream debate too, but these are examples of unique contributions to the debate that I've already made that frankly are already starting to be adopted by other candidates, which I think is a good thing. The case I make to the voters is, okay, at the end of this, do we want a follower in the White House or do we want a leader? I do think the Republican Party should become the party of the outsider, where we make it a habit of nominating the actual outsider rather than somebody who's a product of the political system that we supposedly want to dismantle. But um, you know, I could I could probably go on for the rest of the day. But those give you a taste of some of the things. And abolishing the Department of Education is something that you know, unleashing that eighty billion dollars for better uses and educating our children. These are just a sample of the kinds of ideas that even in the first four weeks of this have already been you know, outspoken about and hopefully I'm driving the debate already. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I'm curious where you feel that you overlap with Silicon Valley and where you differentiate with Silicon Valley. There's not one, you know, Silicon Valley company I know of that's anti-DEI. Uh, and so, you know, your firm direction position perhaps alienates the the 90% that is left wing and the, the remaining, you know, five venture capitalists who are right wing uh, got on the other side of you on the on the SVB issue. And although that's kind of a temporary or, you know, momentary issue that will probably be in the past, I suspect you have some substantive, you know, more durable disagreements with, with that side of Silicon Valley as well. So how do you reflect on where Silicon Valley should overlap with you and recognize the things that you, you share in common and, and where there are substantive differences that you, that you should also be acknowledged as well. I'm a little bit of an idealist here, but I would love to even abandon that Silicon Valley label because I think it's just another, 
you know, labels can be confining, both whether you're in the in-group defined by that label or on the outside of it. And I would just like to think of that the people who operate and work in Silicon Valley is still just being part of a broader tapestry of American citizens who diverge in their opinions at our best, even in a healthy way so, on a wide range of questions. Now, where, where do I differ from corporate Silicon Valley, at least? Let's talk about that. Uh, I think a few few areas that are not going to be new to this conversation because I've been vocal about this in the past and there are other voices who have joined the chorus. I, I do reject the identitarianism of the modern capital D, capital E, capital I agenda that calls on us to see one another on the basis of our genetically inherited attributes, to see ourselves as oppressors or oppressed based on the genetic attributes we inherit on the day we're born. I think that the hiring quota systems, the race consciousness that we foster actually fuels greater racism in our country, both anti-white and anti-Asian racism. And yes, anti-white and anti-Asian racism is a coherent concept that can exist, but it is also fueling a new wave of anti-black racism across the country through a culture of tokenism, through a culture of, I would say, quiet condescension, and also a culture of psychological slavery. I'm going to use that word intentionally, that teaches young black kids that they can't achieve something on their own merits without somebody else giving them a helping hand up. And I think that, you know, in some cases, it starts with good intentions. I don't think that most people in Silicon Valley, corporate ranks, whatever, are, you know, believing that they make the world a worse place while gleefully pasting a smile on their face and, and you know, marching with the bushy-tailed, make the world a better place, Silicon Valley culture. I, I, it does annoy me a little bit. I'm going to have to admit that. But that, but, <laughs> but, I, but, I, but, I, but I think it mostly starts from good intentions, actually. And I think that good intentions can still be taken awry in a lot of bad ways. And I think the, the racialized, identitarian dogma entrenched into the hiring ranks of Silicon Valley, I think, embody that. And then I'm also against the culture. I mean, Silicon Valley 1.0's culture, I'm all in for with respect to the free exchange of ideas through a free and open internet. That was part of the promise of delivering on the culture of the First Amendment introduced in 1789 and even first envisioned really even in 1776. You can see the precursors of it in the Declaration of Independence. That was part of the promise of turning that into reality in a decentralized way outside of the purview of government itself, the free flow of information, the exchange of ideas. That was the American promise realized even on a global scale through the birth of the internet itself. And so that's Silicon Valley 1.0 I'm all in for. The 2.0 version, and we'll see what 3.0 holds in store, but the 2.0 version, I think, gave up on that initial vision and instead said that actually we're going to use the same toolkit as the government through centralization of, of conversation and, and ideational exchange, but also to even work with the old school version of that in government to be able to do through the back door what government never could do through the front door. And that's something that I, I cannot abide. I think Elon Musk, at least in name, you know, I, I was actually on Twitter earlier pointing out, I think maybe some of the implementation failures so far, but all sequel, his intentions are in the right place and it was a positive step forward. But with him as one exception in what he's done with Twitter, uh, stand against a culture of censorship that Silicon Valley has actually come to embody. And I think that some of the people who grew up in 1.0, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and others, who are now effectively operating on, as, under the rules of 2.0 would cringe hearing this. But I think part of what makes them cringe isn't the truth of what I'm saying, but the reality of it. And I think that that's something that hopefully can be a soul-searching moment for some of those who came of age in the transition from 1.0 to 2.0 who still are able to help maybe even with greater credibility because you know the path to conviction sometimes runs through doubt, maybe to say that we, we erred 
but we're going to come back and and you know reorient ourselves towards the true north star the jack dorsey's the mark zuckerberg's of the world i believe they have it in them i don't the question is whether they have the fortitude to actually to actually unleash that inner animal and if not then it's going to have to be others that do it it's part of why i'm in this presidential race but um you know i think those are some of the areas of disagreement with silicon valley 2.0 that actually channeled the spirit of silicon valley 1.0 that i'd like to actually see revived uh you know the silicon valley bank stuff i'm happy to talk about I, I was just disappointed frankly to see a lot of people who i think agree with me or would have agreed with me on first principle on what should have happened there blinded by their own self-interest and we're all human beings we're all fallen human beings maybe i'm blinded by my self-interest at times maybe i'm blinded by my self-interest as a political candidate what is that self-interest i don't i mean we're making a sacrifice to do this whole thing right i've put eight figure sums of my own money written into the campaign just to start this thing this isn't self-interested in any capitalistic sense of the word but i do think that with those caveats to one side i think that it is interesting to me that amongst you know financial intelligentsia of which I'm a member of one, but I know a lot of others who are who are as well. There isn't one person who <laughs> supported the government intervention in the Silicon Valley bank case who I've met who did not have direct financial interests in actually seeing the government intervene to save the uninsured depositors of Silicon Valley Bank, but plenty from Cliff Asnes to Ken Griffin to others who did not have those same direct interests, who were equally members of the financial intelligentsia. I don't think anybody could look at me or certainly Cliff Asses or Ken Griffin to say we're, we're unsophisticated on this issue, uh, who didn't have those financial interests who came out on the other side of it. So I do think this is a case where self-interest guides the likes of you know, the David Sachses of the world to reinvent a moral justification for a position that he otherwise would have never adopted and certainly would have been on the other side of in absence of that self-interest. But put that to one side, that's a short-term thing. I think first principles are best discussed amongst participants in a debate where self-interest isn't clouding somebody's judgment on that. But, you know, I think that Silicon Valley is not one thing, just like America is not one thing. But if you're asking me to generalize, those would be some of my responses. Yeah. And you had a great debate with, with David Sachs on it. So I, I, I won't get too much into the SVB. I'll just point people in the show notes to that debate. I'm curious how far you take the merit idea, because if we got rid of affirmative action, we got rid of DEI, Undoubtedly, the groups that have been propped up by, by affirmative action DEI would go down. And then similarly, if you extract it, extrapolate even further, you know, pure merit-based immigration, I suspect that the, the groups that are crushing it will, uh, will have even more of them and uh, even less of uh, other, other groups of people who are not. So how far do you take that, that, that merit-based idea? Yeah, so, so the second topic is slightly different because I don't think merit is just measured in terms of the way we conceptualize merit today in this country. So I don't think we need a bunch more IT guys in, in sort of what merit-based immigration necessarily means. I think we have other needs in this country that are under-addressed, and there are many ways to be meritorious as contributors to the country. That should be what guides merit-based immigration in the country. But let's take on the hiring question. I think in the short run, you're right. We'd probably see less Black and Hispanic representation in corporate C-suite ranks if we abandoned affirmative action policies. I think that that's a reality and a symptom of our failure to address deeper problems upstream that almost stop us from addressing those deeper problems upstream because we apply these filters that tell us that we've artificially solved a problem through a symptomatic therapy when in fact it relieves us of the responsibility of addressing the real problem upstream, which starts in early childhood education, family formation, 
the ability to give people a strong economic foundation to be able to achieve their maximal potential. That's what we need to be doing for people who are disempowered, regardless of the color of their skin, though many of them do tend to be disproportionately black and Hispanic. And so my view is, I think America loses in the end when we don't put the best person in their job. And if we're being really honest, most people listening to this, they can ask the question for themselves. Is that person who got a promotion? Is the person who got the job? Is the person who got that, whose kid got into that college? Is that really the best person for that position? Or was it in part influenced by demographic attributes, particularly race? I think if most people are honestly answering that question, I think that we live in a world today where we, in a country today where we just accept that it's no longer just the best person who got that job or that spot in college or that promotion. It's just not the way it works right now. Maybe some people disagree with me. I don't think most people will. I think that's just an acknowledgement of a reality. Now, people may say that there are other social values to trade that off against, and that's a legitimate debate. But here's what I say is America itself loses in the end. First of all, China's not applying these same standards over there, our competitiveness. But we're also degrading the respect that we accord to every one of those black Americans by effectively supposing that they needed that extra leg up and that hand up. I actually went to a you know, this is a first personal point about me. I mean, I went to a racially diverse, not all that well-off public school from first through eighth grade. I, I did not grow up in money. My parents weren't poor. We are middle class, but we happened to be living districted in a school district where if it wasn't majority black, it was close to it, okay? And, and kids who were held back, some of whom were one or two or even three years older than me in the same, you know, class in junior high school and otherwise. There isn't a single one of those black kids who couldn't achieve everything that I have in my life, that you or your peers have in your life, Eric, if they hadn't been given the same privilege that I had. And I don't mean money. I said I wasn't born into money. But the actual true privilege of being born into a stable family with, yes, two parents in the house that placed an emphasis on education and did it with full commitment, making the sacrifices needed as parents to do that for your kids. That's the reality. I don't believe that there are innate or certainly meaningful innate differences across different racial groups. I don't. Some people may disagree with me. That I think that that's a whole separate discussion, but I think that that's just not the case, in my opinion. I think it is a case of early acculturation that starts even before schools, though I think that there's some need for reform in schools to provide parents with equal educational access. I think a lot of school choice movements in this country are taking positive steps in that direction. I think that's a huge step forward. But the further upstream we go, the closer we are to hovering right over the flame of truth. It starts with the family. And you know what? 70% plus of black kids in this country were born into parents with, with households with two parents in the house in the 1960s. Today, it's well under 30% inverted in the other direction. Why? It's because of Lyndon Johnson's great society policies that in the name of helping black Americans actually created incentives for black families to have the dad out of the house because single mothers got paid more money on welfare than the dad was bringing home in. So she's like, oh, I'm married to you. Well, guess what? I'll be married to him, Uncle Sam, because he's going to send me more money. You create, people respond to financial incentives. We created that structure. And then Lyndon Johnson also was, as I alluded to earlier, the president who created affirmative action by executive order, then teaches black kids through this form of psychological slavery that you can't hack it on your own. That actually you do need a special form of help because you don't have what it takes. That's effectively the message that it sends. And so, you know what? I think it is, it is 
equally a form of anti-black racism that I cannot abide. And I think that in the short run, that may mean less representation. In the long run, I think it forces us to do the hard work. And I'm one of these people that doesn't just want to, you know, talk the talk on ending affirmative action. I think we've got to walk the walk on creating the true conditions for equality of opportunity in this country and let, and then let the chips fall where they may. And I think it will be a lot less racially non-diverse than people might be worried about in their heart because they probably harbor a racist supposition that black people can't hack it on their own. And I don't share that. I think, I think any person, regardless of the color of their skin, can if we start under conditions of reasonable equality of opportunity. And, and I just want to comment that the two-parent household formation, family formation has dropped, I believe, for poor families across races, which shows that uh, you know the government influence uh, is significant. It's not just what, what one group. It's uh, yeah, You just brought up affirmative problem. action as the leader, which is why I talked about black family formation. But it's actually true across the board. You're right. We have a fatherlessness epidemic across the country. We have, we're in the middle of a national identity crisis across all races in this country for a reason. I do think the erosion of the traditional family structure is a big part of that. I'm, I'm curious, as you've continued to think about um, how to balance out or get rid of sort of uh, woke hegemony in, in corporations the most effective way. Because you could say, hey, uh, companies just need to optimize for their you know bottom line, but maybe for some companies, it does make sense to, to be woke for their bottom line. Or you could say, hey, there needs to be no uh, kind of political discrimination. Maybe that's hard to hard to legalize. Or you could say, hey, there needs to be, there's woke capital companies, there needs to be right-wing, uh, you know, companies, but maybe there's not the same uh, IQ or same sort of talent base there. How have you evolved in your thinking of what is the most, what are the most effective ways to, to, to fight woke, woke hegemony in, in corporations? I don't view fighting woke hegemony as an end in itself, right? It is a means to an end of reviving a shared national identity that binds us together and creating a political spaces like the workplace, by the way, that used to be the places that bind us together across the divisions of partisan and identity politics. So that's what I care about. I mean, the people who kind of fall into the trap of fighting wokeness as an end in itself, you're missing the point, right? Like, why? That's a Republican answering the question of the what, okay. But without answering the question of the why, you're like a billiard ball that's that rolls in whatever direction it's hit, rather than actually understanding why you're aiming in that direction in the first place. And, you know, I, people say I wrote Woke Inc., so they may mistake me for one of these people. I mean, read the book or whatever that you, you, think, you think I care much more about the why rather than, you know, just going through the motions of being anti-woke, which is what I see in a lot of the Republican political establishment today. You're asking the question of, of why that actually matters, right? Or how we actually get there, the why and the how, a little bit of both. First of all, I do think that the role of a corporation is to pursue its self-stated mission, actually. Different companies have different missions. So ask yourself what your mission is. Maybe it's to produce notebooks. I say that because I have a notebook on my desk next to me. I just you know, made that up. Maybe it's to make clothing. Maybe it's to provide financial products that allow people to achieve their retirement on a certain timeline. Follow your mission. And, and, and generally, the path to value creation, you know, I do believe in the system of fiduciary duties, et cetera, but how do you actually create value? You create value by pursuing a worthy mission and as a corporation to have everything that you do be guided by that worthy mission. That's the path to value creation, lasting value creation of an enterprise. So every corporation owes it to itself to ask itself what kinds of diversity do help you advance that mission and what kinds don't. Right, let, let's take a steakhouse. Okay, The purpose of a steakhouse could be to provide culinary delight to their customers through serving 
a particular kind of meat. Okay, fine. I think it's incumbent on that steakhouse to ask itself what kinds of diversity it wants in its workforce ranks versus what kinds of diversity it does not want. Even the ever-prized diversity of thought is still, to me, if you're a corporation, just a means to an end of achieving your mission. So I would not, for example, make for a good example, good employee of that steakhouse because I don't eat meat. I'm a vegetarian on moral grounds, whatever. I was raised that way. I believe in that. I, 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 I would do it for health reasons. But if I have a choice just for culinary pleasure, I, I prefer not to kill animals. It relates to some of the same reasons I'm, you know, a, a grounded worldview and philosophy. I'm pro-life. That's a whole separate discussion. We could, we could have another day. I would not make for a good employee at a steakhouse. I would add diversity in many forms, even viewpoint diversity. But that would not help a steakhouse advance its mission. And so that's where I land on this. I called it critical diversity theory was, I think, the chapter in Woke Inc. that sort of described my worldview here is that we should – Institutions should be diverse in their approach to diversity. But what I reject is the off-the-shelf approach. And if you have a three-letter acronym, the chances are that's a good indicator that's off-the-shelf to say that there's one set of agendas, be it DEI or ESG or whatever else, CSR, that rejects the pluralism, institutional pluralism, the pluralism amongst the missions of different companies. And so I guess that's kind of the easy answer to the whole thing. Now, I think that if there's a company that's not pursuing its mission effectively, and it still is a worthy mission, that under certain conditions, if you take incumbency bias, et cetera, off the table, can be an opportunity for a new market entrant to make a difference. That was the whole premise of Strive, offering index funds that are narrowly different from those offered by BlackRock or others in its approach to proxy voting and shareholder engagement. There could be other markets where the same thing is true as well, but I think it's all about mission orientation, having a worthy mission, staying true to that mission, and then everything else you know, really follows from that. I do think that that deals with the corporate side of this. That's not an end-all, be-all solution to the cultural problem, right? I'm running for president separately from building businesses for a reason because I do think that there's a demand side to this too. We might live in a culture where companies, a company in a given circumstance will make more money or better realize its own mission of serving its customers by spinning up these victimhood narratives that cause more of that populace, the Gen Z consumer-based or whatever, to see themselves as race-based or sexual, sexually-based victims. I do think that it's, that's a regrettable state of affairs for the country, but I don't think that that's the job of a company to solve that in the first instance. I think companies can play a role in providing leadership for a culture that's craving for leadership. I think many of those workers or employees, when they're saying they want you to take on a social cause, is like the equivalent of a child who many at the age of nine might say he's trapped in the wrong body and of the wrong gender it's not what they're saying that they're actually saying. They're waving a smoke signal saying, I need help. I need leadership. I need guidance. And so I think CEOs can play a role there. But I think the CEO's job is to do that in the context of corporate mission. But I think the job of a national leader, which is what I'm embarking on, I'm going to run to you know, lead the country, I think that's a different hat where you actually want to provide leadership to the country and creating the conditions for true diversity of viewpoint expression. And so that's why I'm a big proponent of treating or adding political expression as a protected class. Ironically, it actually is the case in California. It's what allowed James Damore to settle with Google is that he was likely fired on the basis of viewpoint discrimination. And ironically, that was actually passed during an era where there was great left-wing concern about under the Bush administration or otherwise having viewpoint censored in the workforce about post 9-11 surveillance state, right? So things come full circle here. But I think I, whether it's a left wing idea or right wing idea, I don't much care. I think that we will be better off as a country if we make political expression a civil right in this country and codify it as such, because I think that's something that unifies us 
regardless we're on the left or the right, and fosters our culture of free speech beyond just government intrusions on free speech. Free speech culture is good for America. So, so I could go on there about how I think it ought to be addressed in my capacity as a public leader, as a president of the United States, but to not conflate that with how we deal with the problems raised by woke capitalism. I won't even call it the problem of woke capitalism, the problems revealed by woke capitalism. I think um, mission orientation is, I think, a great way and, and, and an unapologetic commitment to corporate mission is, I think, a way that CEOs can can do the right thing, both for their own organizations and, and for our broader national culture. Richard Hanania reviewed your, your book, and uh, it, was, it was a positive review. But one thing he said that the one challenge with changing the laws is that, hey, you could change the laws in, in a school or you could change the laws in a, in a certain business. But if all the teachers are, are left wing, all the professors are left wing, all the lawyers are left wing, they're not, they're not going to follow the, it's going to be hard to enforce the, the, those rules. And so he says the big problems are it's a lack of ideas and a lack of talent. You're, you're, you're trying to solve for the ideas portion. I'm curious how you think about the, the, the talent portion, because he's also talked about the differences between liberals and conservatives today. He says liberals just care more. They staff up the PTA meetings. They're willing to be activists. The, the right wing is not, not willing to do that. But also the, he says the left is just higher IQ. Uh, you know, they, they, most people who go to college are, are, are left wing and, and not that people in college are always higher IQ, but on average, they tend to be probably higher IQ than people who don't go to college. And so right now, many people in tech are politically homeless, right? They, they don't want to be uh, super left because they see what it does to their companies, but they also don't want to be super right because they don't want to be associated with uh, a certain kind of person that they feel that they're smarter than or more impressive than or more ambitious than. And, and they also don't believe in, uh, they're, they're not pro-life. They're, 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 they're you know, pro-gay marriage. So they, they don't share all the same opinions, but they share a lot of them. They're free market. They're, they don't want to be libertarian. They, um, and so I'm, I'm curious how, how you think about the, both the talent front of just how do you up-level the, 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 the right? I do think there's a little bit of a fetishization of IQ as like a parameter that matters. I do think a lot of, if I'm to do the Silicon Valley overgeneralization again, would sort of, you know, would sort of point to that. Yeah, I can respond to the Richard Hanania point, and Richard's since become, you know, I think a good friend. He, is, he actually was here in Columbus not that long ago. And, and by the way, I wrote Woking a few years ago. I uh, believe as a thinking human being to be able to evolve your thoughts and change your mind. I've moved a little bit, even in terms of where I was in my policy prescription since Woking, both on some of them being not really implementable ideas and others of them while being good ideas, not being end-all, be-all solutions. So I think that I agree with what Richard said. I think Richard sometimes falls into the same trap that maybe I fell into when I was writing Woke Inc., which is everyone thinks their little pet solution is like the right solution. And then you try to see the problem you're solving through the prism of the solution that you, you know, got smitten with. And actually, the reality is the problems are complicated and they require a plethora of partial solutions. And so anyway, that's a separate and, and probably less important uh, debate that we can get into it. But suffice to say, actually, bottom line in that review, I, I have grown to agree with a lot of what Richard wrote and have actually accommodated that into much of my thinking. Even if you look at some of the Wall Street Journal op-eds I've written in the last year, some of that actually, I think, reflects the evolution in my thoughts since Woke Inc. that Richard and others helped spawn uh, for me through constructive criticism. Let's talk about this, the deeper cultural issue, because I think, I think the way you phrase some things there, I think, are, are honest. And I think that they reveal, I think, a cultural divide that doesn't have to exist, but that does between like Silicon Valley and the other. Like let's let's talk about like particularly the reluctance uh, between many in Silicon Valley today seeing themselves kind of in their heart drawn to what 
you know, I'm not being presumptuous. I just think it's true, drawn to what some people like me are saying on some issues relating to national identity, but who sort of shun the idea of the, you know, Republican or right wing label. It's because it's Trump, Trump, Trump was so beyond the pale for so many people, right? Yeah, just forget Trump, forget the who, forget just just forget the labels. Just just think about it in terms of first principles. You can decide where you are on the policies. I think you'll probably, at least for a Republican like me, probably find a lot of a lot of people would find a lot of common cause without identifying themselves as Republican. We're seeing this in part of partly our data, by the way, Eric, too, is like I think 30% of our donors are like close to 30%, 29% of our donors in the first month. And we had like lots of unique individual donors. Uh, a, they were small donors, but B, 29% of them were first-time donors to a Republican candidate. So I hope we keep that number high. Normally, I'm told it would be like 2%. So it's like an order of magnitude higher percentage, more than that, you know, a little bit more than 10x higher what the norms would be for first-time candidates. And that's great. That's great. I, I'm, I'm for dissolving a lot of these artificial boundaries that we create. But I think part of what's at work isn't really a policy difference. It's, it's sort of a cultural otherness. Like, I'm not one of them. And I think that there is this mentality of like the Rube mentality or whatever that uh, feels a little bit undignified to find common cause with a guy who's like wearing a camo hat showing up at like a MAGA rally. I think we need to find a way of culturally piercing through that otherism. I think it's a form of otherism. And, and I think you see it in reverse too, the otherism of like, you know, Silicon Valley, but, 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 you know, I mean, let's, let's be honest about who holds the tickets to power in the country. It's not like an equal asymmetric, you know, distribution there. So I think that that's not to say that one form of otherism is more justified than the other, but maybe the people who are, I think, in a position of, you know, economic power, at least in the country, ought to be willing to go first in in abandoning otherism. And, you know, I think that part of my role here in this debate, national landscape or whatever, I mean, maybe maybe some people will hear some of the things I say on a given day and disagree with them and think that guy's dumb, but, and they're, they're entitled to that. But I, I don't believe in false humility. All right. I think I've probably achieved what most people who move to Silicon Valley to become an entrepreneur aspire to. Maybe not at the absolute highest level. It's not a trillion dollar company I've created, but I've built three companies from scratch in the last, you know, 10 years written, th you know, Three books, two of which are best-selling books already, graduated the tops of my classes at places like Harvard, Yale, et cetera. I'm not saying this to boast. I'm saying this to sort of build a connection with a base of people who I can then use that standing to tell you with firm authority, okay? The people who live within a 100-mile radius of where I'm talking to you from near my home in Columbus, Ohio, most of them understand the Constitution in their bones more deeply than many of the people that I went to Harvard or Yale Law School with or who I've built businesses with. You know, I've, I'm, I'm not some like hands-off CEO who happened to have stumbled into biotech and then and then just, you know, found the smartest people. I did find the smartest people I could, many of whom were smarter than me, who, who we did bring in. But, you know, the five drugs that are approved on the market today, they would not be on the market today for a rare genetic disease in 20 kids who now live lives of a normal or are able to live lives of a more normal duration would have died by the age of three to men with prostate cancer, to a drug for endometriosis and for uterine fibroids, to psoriasis, to a drug for elderly people, with overactive bladder. I, I, I'm first personally like involved in, in 
overseeing the strategy with FDA of the tri- of the trials we need to run. Okay, so like this is coming from me here. I'm I'm trying to find sort of some sense of common cause and purpose with people who think of themselves as product guys with skinny jeans and thinking that coding makes the ability to code puts them in a different moral or or intellectual stratum. Maybe it does put you in a different intellectual stratum, but the first thing I would say is not as much as you think, I think, actually. But the second thing I would say is that there's a fetishization of like IQ as a parameter that matters after a certain point of intelligence. Like it doesn't matter if you're that much more intelligent or not, even in terms of your ability to make useful contributions. But then when it comes to human dignity that you're going to court somebody, it doesn't matter at all, even whether you're at that stratum or not. And I think the sense of losing your self-importance just because you're like, smart or intelligent have some authority to deliver this message because whatever for whoever's playing that sport like 99.99 percent of the time i'm going to have outwon that relative to you but i'm just going to tell you from that position of like self-realization that does not accord you more moral worth than the perceived rube you see think is showing up at that maga rally because they're too dumb to understand climate change actually most of them might be more educated on the topic of climate change than you believe you are because you're getting your information through a distilled knowledge system that itself selectively cherry picks from where the actual capitalist science is itself derived from not to mention if you want to play the intelligence game actually ask who goes into climate science as opposed to into say somebody who actually majors in old school physics well there's actually a talent pool you know, bias that actually creates social activists who are drawn to the realm of majoring in climate science, that when they produce the capitalist science, it's not even higher quality science relative to somebody who studied molecular biology, or organic chemistry, or actual physics. We can go, we, we, we can sort of debate that on its own terms of the intelligence hierarchy, but suffice to say, the people who are the consumers of actual primary knowledge at a MAGA rally here in Ohio probably know more about the actual impact on human flourishing of the use of fossil fuels than somebody who's receiving their information on the same topic from a distilled, uh, approved pipe channel of how they get their knowledge on the same subject. And so whatever I'm going to say that's most persuasive, some of that probably sounded, you know, unhumble. And I did that on purpose for a reason, because I'm trying to, you know, bridge a divide here that I don't think has to exist. I think if people lose their sense of self-importance about their own IQ or the number of green pieces in their bank account is giving them any sort of form of moral authority in the country. I think that know that the people in the rest of the country have a good, pretty good sixth sense and antenna that you feel that way too. And that's a big part of the division in our country. And I think we would do well to abandon these false idols that we, you know, I think especially in, in, in Silicon Valley culture, Wall Street culture, where I kind of first began my career, you know, have have grown accustomed to wearing. And then on a given day where we're you know, feeling like a good citizen again and wondering where to send our political dollars and who to host a fundraiser for, feel like we ask the question, why are we so divided? Try looking in the mirror. I think each of us ought to, uh, owes it to ourselves to look in the mirror and ask ourselves what role we played. You don't, easy to point at January 6th and point at the TV and play some footage and say, I'm not that. A lot harder to look in the mirror and ask yourself what role you played in actually creating that. I think any American who's going to point out what happened on January 6th and as, a, as a national travesty and blaming somebody else for it, my homework assignment for you is look in the mirror and ask yourself what role you played in creating the conditions for that. And I think every American has some self-reflection to do on that count. And I think the more of it we're willing to do honestly and engage in ourselves, I think the more likely it is we're going to have a thriving nation left at the end of it.
it's, it's not just Silicon Valley and Wall Street. It's really just education polarization in general, where you sort of have a, a class that that you know goes to university and all, all believes a, a certain way, and and, a, and you know two thirds of the country that 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 doesn't. Basically, what what sort of 2016 and, and, and Trump and others did is they they or what happened as a result of it is uh, you can no longer be right wing, still be in good graces of of people of of your coworkers of your friends, of your relations, you know, they don't date anymore across the aisle. And with, with, the, with the hope for the new right, people like you, people like J.D. Vance is saying, hey, we'll have the 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 fight of someone like uh, Trump, maybe, you know, the instincts, the 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 ability to, uh, the charisma, let's just say, um, whereas, but you also have the competence and perceived competence, perceived intellectual sophistication of like a, a Mitt Romney or Barack Obama so that people can see, hey, we're, we're peers here. You went to the best universities, you, you built big companies, uh, these are people I, I can associate with and and justify it. And Eric, here's I'm, I'm not exactly in the same place as JD. I think there was some, some and he's a friend, but you know, also from Ohio here, et cetera. We were law school classmates, and we grew up actually 15 minutes from each other. Even you know where his where he was in, you know, closer to Middletown. It's not that far from where I grew up in Westchester, Ohio. And I don't want to speak for him, but my sense is I don't I don't even harbor like an anti elite bias as its own. I don't want to be anti anything. I just don't like it when so-called elite are anti-rube or anti-so-called rube. And I think we should just get rid of these labels, actually, because they're artificial. They're made up. And, you know, I genuinely believe, I will say this. I said this before, but I'll say it again because I think it's important for people to hear me on this. I genuinely believe that most people, including sitting in woke Silicon Valley, begin with good intentions, including even as Americans, in doing something that they believe makes for the world being in the country, in their case, maybe the world without regard to the country, but being a better place. But still, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt for good intentions for the rank and file person. Different for the, you know, a lot of the people at the top who cynically exploit some of this, some of this hunger for purpose. But the average person in the ranks who kind of shows up and puts a little, you know, black square on their Instagram account or whatever, they're not bad people, right? They're just, many of them are lost. They're hungry for purpose. They're discovering themselves but it comes from a good place. I would really ask you <laughs> to consider making the same charitable assumption about the average person who shows up at a MAGA rally or a Trump rally or whatever, or pretty soon to be my rallies or whatever, soon in this country. Because it's true. Actually, like I've seen it, I, I've lived in your world, right? It's not an unfamiliar one to me. It's, I'm, you know, in and out part of it. And, and I think that if we can make the assumption that the most other of the other still probably shares the same good intentions that we do, I think that we will realize a lot of the divisions that we create are the products of categories, terms we use. Language, I think, can be dangerous in this respect, right? Labels can be confining. Once you think of yourself as a person of color or as a member of Silicon Valley or as a member of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party or whatever, that label then becomes confining. It's like a prison that shackles you. And I think that it stops you once you're shackled, then you're shackled to a tribe that requires you to see a member of the other tribe as a member of the other. And, and you know, I'm not anti-elite either. I think that's also just sort of a label. What does it mean to be elite? I mean, I, I, in Woke Inc., actually, I sort of parsed this a little bit where a university, you've got the professors, you've got the managerial class, the administrators, and then you've got the students. 
the professors and the and the administrative bureaucracy, the associate dean of God knows what, they're both elites. But I think one is responsible for the cancerous death of the university in a way that the other is not, right? You can have crazy left-leaning professors, fine. But as long as people are just freely pursuing their own ideas at a place like Harvard to pursue truth, so be it. It's a free flow of ideas with, with protected environments to actually pursue ideas freely. But the managerial bureaucracy, the associate dean of, of you know some three-letter acronym, that's actually what's created the anti-intellectual, hostile culture at today's universities, the oppressive, intellectually oppressive culture at most universities today. But like both are elite, so the word elite is not useful. So I'm a fan of abandoning these labels, but I think that we have to do it with charitable instincts that are grounded, not just for the sake of being nice, but because they're likely to be grounded in truth, that whenever you think whatever you're doing is to advance some good intention, chances are that person who you view as the other who showed up even peacefully on January 6th in Washington, D.C., showed up there because they believed in good intentions for this country too. And you know, I think I reserve my criticisms where I don't start with those same charitable assumptions with the likes of those whose financial self-interest guides actually much of what they end up saying. And that's my issue with the Larry Finks of the world or even a lot of the folks who disappointed me with their you know, puzzling uh, and vehement advocacy around the Silicon Valley bank situation, which I know alienated a lot of folks in Silicon Valley. And, and th that's unfortunate and probably lost a lot of donors as a consequence, but maybe we'll, <laughs> maybe we'll bring some of them back uh, over the course of the next year and a half. But either way, my, my goal is to speak truth at every step of this. And I begin for all but those who I think are in the category of having financial self-interest as a way of perpetuating philosophies that are guised in the garb of doing good, that's a really small subset of the total. But for everybody else, I'm, I'm really prepared to start with the charitable assumption that even if we disagree, we're still doing it with the best of intentions. Yeah, it, it's well, well put. And to that end, you know, I want to define a term before we, before we get you out of here. Sam Altman, in a recent Lex Friedman interview, Lex said, is, is ChatGPT too woke? And Sam said, I don't even know what woke means. People use the term. And um, the, the best way I, I define the term is uh, choosing equity over liberty, choosing redu the reduction of disparities as your main goal over freedom of association or freedom of speech via legal me methods or, or, or cultural methods. And that kind of prioritization just make, makes it a bit concrete and, because at the end of the day, there is a you got to make a choice. Yeah, I, I, the way I'll define it in neutral terms is it's a worldview that says that there are those who are oppressors and those who are oppressed in the world generally based on genetically inherited attributes. And then you mix in a belief about the existential calamity posed by climate change. That's basically, in short form, what it means to be woke. Now, I think that, agree or not, that's, that's, a, that's a facially neutral definition. Uh, I have my criticisms. I think it's divisive. I think it calls on us to take steps that actually undermine cohesion and solidarity in the country. But put that to one side, I think defining a term is a fair ask. That's how I define it. And uh, you know, hopefully that's useful to the debate. In closing, let's end with something that Silicon Valley can resonate with you on, which is building a startup, which is building your campaign. Uh, you know, famous Silicon Valley famously does not enter politics. People think it's it's beneath them, or you know, they they don't for other reasons they, they don't get involved unless it's donating to the Democrat Party, but they don't run. T talk about you built a big company, you're building a campaign. T t give us an insight into into what it's like. Yeah, I mean, look, it's like starting a new company from scratch and, and entering as like an outsider. You're climbing Mount Everest, taking on the biggest possible incumbents there are in this business. Donald Trump in the Republican Party and and existing incumbents 
as a total outsider, it's a lot of fun. It's, and I'm finding the same principles work, a mix of insiders and outsiders, talent, people making a big difference, having a mission that's worthy, staying true to that mission. I'm planning to apply the same principles, whether that, that creates for a successful electoral strategy or not, we'll find out in due course. Well, we'll continue the, the conversation. It'll be, it'll be fascinating to follow along and watch. Uh, my guest today has been Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it, man. Hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? They just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more. Wondering what on earth is happening up in space? They just dropped a series on the satellite economy. Or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos? They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people. Movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.